Hi everyone, welcome to my podcast. I'm Choi, and for this episode, I invited an architect to tell us more about the developments in this industry in Asia. Asia has changed so much in the past two decades, so I was wondering what that's like as an architect in Asia. I'm honored to have found Mr. Karma Parfumba willing to share his experience. Karma has been working as an architect from Asia for almost 25 years now. He's a director at Arup since 2015 a multinational firm of designers, engineers, architects, etc., with over 16,000 employees and 100 offices in 35 countries. It goes without saying that Karma has worked on prestigious projects all over the world, so the perfect guest with the right experience for this topic. In this interview, I will ask him about the developments he has witnessed, the future, the young talent that is available, what is happening in China, sustainability, his view of European architecture, and so much more. Conclusion, it is quite challenging in these times, but hopefully in a promising way. And I was very relieved to hear that sustainability plays such a huge role in daily decisions. So dive with me into this world and enjoy the interview with Karma. Hey, Karma. Hi, good to have you here. How are you? Hi, Chai. Good to be here. I'm, I'm doing well. Okay, where are you right now? I'm in my office in Festival Walk. Okay, in Hong Kong, that is. That right. is in Hong Kong. Yeah. H- HKSAR. Okay. Hey, so you are in, uh, you are working as an architect in Asia now for, for 25 years. Mm. So that's uh, quite an adventure because Asia changed so much. So that's in right. what kind of projects were you involved and where? Um. I've been working around Asia itself uh, in, in many different countries. Of course, uh, Hong Kong is the center for me, but we work in China or on China. We go work in the, uh, maybe sometimes we've been working in the Middle East or uh, Thailand, I mean, everywhere in Asia is our, uh, is our field, is our, uh, we just go where the project takes us. Yeah, and especially okay. like, um, with the, with the, the recent uh, COVID issues, and you know, there's literally no limit. You, know, you can all work virtually in a, <laughs> any location. So that's also rather interesting. Yep. But it must be weird to do your work remotely. I mean, the, no, it is um, important. I, I I assume to see the the, the situation. No, it, it is because, but the constraint, of course, is that you can't travel, right? And then, of course, the life has to keep uh, moving on. So, a lot of clients now are happy for you to work um, remotely itself on the on their projects because, the, like I'm saying, life still has to carry on. You can't just stop. So that, um, and that yeah, facilitates. You have to. Uh, that's right. So it facilitates um, these kind of remote working. I mean, I think maybe two years ago, you couldn't do it. Yeah, but yeah, still, doesn't it matter what how the atmosphere is? No, it matters, especially for, I think, architecture, you know, when you're building something, you need to go and almost uh, not really smell the place, but definitely see it, right? And then know the location. And actually, a lot of us uh, architects, we always think that, you know, that you have to design for the place 
um, for designing for the place effectively means going there, looking at the culture, looking at the surroundings, looking at um, every different aspects that is there. And um, in the interim, I think that's not something that we can do. So, but in the future, hopefully, we go back to a business as normal. Okay, um, yeah. So, and what about the past? Uh, yeah, what kind of project were you involved? Is there any project well, that you're most proud of? Uh, I've worked on many different kind of projects. The main thing, like you said, um, I think in, in, in Asia with the uh, WTO coming in to expand their territories, right? Uh, there's so much things happening in Asia in the past, uh, since the 1990s, but I think, uh, and of course, uh, China only opened up to WTO in 2000, but then uh, by that time, the whole of Asia was the, uh, the center for money coming in from the West, right? So there was a lot of development everywhere in the, around Asia itself. So I was working in most countries around this area, but uh, even though I did work on tall glitzy buildings or hotels, et cetera, uh, more and more I was now, I was getting, uh, going down the path of infrastructure and uh, uh, things like MTRC, uh, Different, different industrial building a sector a sector which was completely piggybacking on the sheer volume of uh, development in asia itself so those are the kinds of projects that i was actually working on more and more okay yeah i know that you were involved in uh, mtr stations here yeah. in hong kong that's right any other big logistic uh, projects outside of hong kong elsewhere yeah, in asia? They- I think when was it? a few years ago, we were working in uh, Riyadh Metro. Right? So we were designing more than 12 stations in uh, Riyadh Metro itself. So similarly, I think in China, we're designing stations. We're working down in uh, Thailand, uh, designing their metro down there. And right now, we're also working on some projects in Australasia and Australia sector. So we are working on many, many of these kind of uh, infrastructure projects. So, Definitely uh, metro itself, because I think every city now, uh, because of the environmental issues, uh, urbanization, et cetera, more and more uh, cities needs mass transportation, because that's the only way you can manage to meet the 2030 or 2050 uh, environmental goals, right? So yeah, a lot of countries are now, as a default, even if you're rich or not rich, you need a mass transportation system to move people around. And then, of course, uh, urbanization means that by you know seventy percent of all people are going to be living in the cities, right? So when you have that amount of bulk of people in the cities, the only way you can move them around is through a mass transportation system that is uh, environmentally friendly, efficient, um, and um, there all the time. Yeah, I that's that's very interesting. I can imagine that there's a lot of overlap. Um, yeah, I mean it is a kind of same system, but. On the other hand, uh, it's also like you have local regulations and local needs that really mm. is different from project to project. How do you deal with that? Um, uh, um, you could simplistically look at it in, in a certain sense, in the sense that regulation are there to safeguard the people's health, uh, livelihood, climate, et cetera, et cetera, right? So in a certain sense, regulations are, you could argue that they are, similar around the world itself. Then of course, and after that, uh, you will have a regional variation itself. So if you do try to understand what are the key ingredients of uh, statutory compliance in different parts of the world, then you can at least have a base 
from which you can then start to design something. But after that, I think you do have to have local experts who's going to come and give you that uh, the, the different peculiarities of the statutory compliance requirement itself. So in that sense, I think uh, you could be designing anywhere in the world as long as you have a, a, a kind of a appreciation that a statutory requirements for life safety or climate sector is required. And then not just cavalier, in, a, in, a, in a very cavalier kind of manner, design something that can't meet the statutory requirement of the place. So there's, so a, lot of, so there's a lot of teamwork. I can imagine. It's a lot of teamwork. Oh, that's right. And then, of course, the, the on the flip side is rather interesting because uh, uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you were working in the Middle East, right? So at that time, there was no statutory requirements there because the most of the buildings there were relatively small. So if you're going to go there and then design a tall building, they don't have the statutory requirements uh, to safeguard the safety of the people who are working in their living there sector. So in that sense, uh, when you go into certain countries where uh, now, let's even now, when you go into certain countries, you have to have uh, some statutory basis or life safety basis to design these buildings. So in that sense, I think you do, uh, yeah. So we have to, yes. And I think I'm maybe trailing away from what you are asking. And, and yes, we need to have a lot of specialists in uh, different, different fields. Especially now, I think uh, safety is on the forefront of uh, every country in the world, life safety, right? And even if you look at uh, UK in the Grenfell uh, fire a few years ago, that was a massive, massive uh, impact uh, oh. for statutory compliance in the UK. And then now we are having more and more uh, climate related um, uh, legislation also. So those also requires you to design a building. So I think designing a building now has a Many many different facets to it, but needs to uh, needs to be in, incorporated and not just a very very base simple um, functional requirement. So compared to ten years ago, it is more complicated now. Yes, yes. In terms of. I think Oh, definitely. I think if you look at China, for example, 10 years ago, they were, you know, when you go there and uh, do some work there, the expectations from our clients were relatively minimal. Now, the, the, all the clients are far, far more uh, cultured, educated, savvy, and they demand far more, right? So in that sense, I think uh, you can't just do what you were doing 10 years ago uh, in China. So the design quality itself is much, much more uh, um, stringent, I would say. The client expects more. And of course, the government now, I think in the, very soon, there's going to be a lot of uh, statutory compliance requirement as from the environmental point of view, right? So, yeah, and those are are changing substantially. Yeah, so what, what happened in China is drastic, right? Um, uh, yes, because there's, there's a huge amount of, there's still a lot of buildings to be built, right? Because um, mm. if you look at it 20 years ago, um, well, the, I think the GDP of China was $1 trillion, right? Now it's about 16 or something uh, trillion dollars. And by by another ten to twenty years, uh, they they will be over twenty five to twenty six trillion dollars. So that that technically means that uh, there's a huge amount of buildings still to be built. There's all there's, there will a fair amount of uh, people still leaving the uh, the this uh, the villages right, and then going into urban areas. So that there is a huge amount of development to be done. So even the old stock of buildings that were not 
compliant from an environmental point of view has to be refurbished and then uh, uh, bought to be compliant with the latest statutory uh, uh, codes, right? Uh, and then, of course, even the design, uh, the, the old buildings have to be bought up to date with the latest design standards or design uh, aesthetics, right? So there, there are a lot of works even in China going forward, not just for people, I think, uh, architects here in Hong Kong, but global architects also, and engineers for sure. So would you say that the most opportunities are, are in China right now? Um, in the interim, yes, right? But um, if you look at it from a development cycle, there's a, uh, I think the, the economists would say that the future of development is to a certain extent in uh, in Asia, but of course, as in, as in Africa, right? Because the Africa, mm. Africa has to grow substantially. Uh, they have to build so much more. So potentially, I think there's also a lot of work for uh, designers, engineers, architects in Africa. Yeah. Were you ever involved in a project in Africa? Yes, yes. So we we do do some work there, but uh, and uh, my company, I think, from from Europe sector, we do have offices there. So in the future, I think uh, to build up a lot of the infrastructure, the sector, housing, um, there will be a lot of work for uh, a lot of other people. But for our company, I think we have local people there. So we will use a local partners there itself to help develop this. Yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, going to another subject, what about um, talent? How are, they, I mean, for you have been uh, in this industry quite a long time. Mm. Did people change? Did uh, is the talent changing? How are young people nowadays? Well, for sure, because when I started off, I mean, we we were always drawing with our pens, right? We had we were had papers. Nowadays, I think with automation and especially digital, right, the the way the architects of nowadays think and draw is completely different, right? So now it's all about three dimensional drawings, and then uh, the from university itself, when the students come out be able to draw uh, buildings sector in a much, much more organic way, uh, three-dimensionally. The things that was not there before in the, in the, in the so in the past 10 years, um, the, the way the architects have taught are in a, in a much, much different way than what was uh, before. Uh, so I think the the talent in that sense, I think they're, they're far more uh, visual uh, mm. and then far more, the process itself of architecture has changed substantially the way it was in the olden days, right? So now it's not, I mean, in, the old, in the olden days, we would always say form follows function, right? The famous dictum in, in modern architecture itself. And we always first get the, uh, the function right, and then you go into formula sort of thing. But nowadays it's a very, very loose uh, way of designing. So a lot of the youths will start looking at it from the outside and then perhaps go into the inside, etc. So it's very different in that sense, yeah. Is that something you're happy about or is that... No, it's, I think it's fine. Okay. I think we have to, yeah, uh, we we need to uh, embrace a lot of these uh, digital interventions that are coming in. And of course, then the future is, again, there's a lot of automation uh, coming into design itself. Hmm. So the question, of course, is uh, how do you then integrate automation into design? Because design by nature is not meant to be automated. Design by nature is meant to be a creative process that is uh, something that an individual uh, almost takes it out of the ether, right? So in the future, if uh, if your uh, your computer and your software can uh, give you these kind of uh, quality, then where does designer stand? 
right? So that's a question to be uh, to be discussed. And and of course, the, I'm sure our, our computer software engineers sector will come up with, and the hardware, of course, will come up with better and better way by which uh, in the future, the potentially there's a very strong chance that the designer becomes obsolete, right? So it is an, ex, uh, in a certain sense, it's an existential uh, a challenge for designers, whether it's an architect, whether it's an engineer, a bridge designer, aviation designer, whatever, right? So it's, but it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a linear process. I think we'll have to uh, go down that path and then see where we, uh, where we reach and how we adapt our own talents, our own expertise uh, to become a much, much more um, better architect or engineers or designer. But that's pretty difficult then for young people who want to become an architect if it's unknown what their role will be. Sized in how much they're being replaced by artificial intelligence. No, we are, <clears throat> yeah, Yuva Noel Harari says that, right? You have to constantly reinvent yourself. You have to constantly educate yourself. So there's never going to be an expertise that uh, is going to be good enough for the rest of your life, right? So today you are um, Mr. Architect. Tomorrow you may be Mr. Something else, right? So the main key, I think, is the to reinvent yourself. Right? And once you keep reinventing yourself, you can, you're going to re reinvent a new kind of design, new kind of a building, new kind of this, new kind of that. So the the key ingredient, I think, for sure, is to you know progress exponentially uh, along with the technology that's coming in from all different sides. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if you uh, can give advice to your younger self or young people out there, but I think you just gave it uh, to keep on reinventing yourself. Yes, yes. Yeah. There's no stopping. Right? I think the only advice I would give, and I've actually have done that, is to take care of your health, right? Because as long as you're healthy and then as long as you have the energy, right, then you can, uh, you know, physically at least, then after that, I think you can keep on reinventing yourself. And if you don't have your health, there's, you know, there's nothing, everything else is a slippery slope. Yeah. So you, what do you do to reinvent yourself? Um, you mean physically or mentally? Uh, more as an architect, I would say. Um, I read a lot. I read a lot. And then, of course, the other thing is, uh, if you, if I just give a small sliver of what's happening right now from an environmental point of view, right? Mm -hmm. Because the climate crisis, right? We're already in a climate crisis. So, um, in a certain sense, if you look at it, uh, me as an architect, me as a builder, me as uh, a professional who's working in the construction industry, we account for almost 39% of the global carbon footprint, right? So technically speaking, uh, I am perpetuating the whole climate crisis, right? So the problem that I'm creating also needs to be tackled and then I need to have a solution. So one of the key things that we are doing, especially in my company and, and uh, me as individually also, is to try to learn more and more about how I can mitigate this 39% of the carbon, right? And how I can reduce that down to a, uh, a level that we can manage. And this is not an individual um, aim or aspiration, but ironically, it is an individual because when you start at an individual level, then in the collective uh, sense, we can be far ahead and then meet the, uh, the 1.5 degree uh, global warming challenge. Because if you don't meet that, then of course, then <laughs> we're not there. <laughs> we don't have a place to live in. So this really plays a big role in your daily work. 
Um, in in my company, because I think the not uh, in all companies, it, is, it should be. Is, um, I can only think uh, talk about my company because we have uh, put climate as the the almost as an existential crisis even for our company. Mm. So even though we say used to say that our, our motto was to build a better world, now we say that climate is everything. So in that sense, I think uh, we have so many different uh, engineering, uh, design disciplines, architecture, etc. in our company. But all of us uh, collectively and globally, that's the main key, I think, thrust. Globally, we are all talking about how can we address the climate issues. Right? The UNSDG goals are all the 17 we have identified well, what is it that we need to do. And all of us are right now apart from our daily work of delivering the project, trying to see how we can then understand and mitigate the issues and then bring them into our projects, right? Because uh, like I was saying, we're already designing a lot of uh, stations or buildings or airports or et cetera, right? And um, this becomes extremely, extremely important, right? So for example, in Hong Kong, in the past uh, three, four years, we are designing uh, four different uh, district cooling plants Right. And this is not something that is exciting for a lot of designers or architects, but for Hong Kong to meet its 2050 target, right, to be carbon neutral, etc. Uh, we need more of the district cooling centers so that, you know, a lot of the buildings, like, for example, one of the biggest uh, energy guzzling thing in a building is the air conditioning. Right? And in Hong Kong, uh, our, our biggest carbon footprint is the electricity. And the, and, and the main reason why we use so much of electricity and generate so much of carbon is because of the buildings, which uses air conditioning, right? So if we can then mi minimize the uses of air conditioning by having district cooling uh, plants, right? That's gonna help Hong Kong's uh, carbon footprint. So there are a lot of these kind of initiatives that I think globally itself we have to do. And engineers and designers need to be working in those uh, sectors. Yeah. to help uh, offset the the, the 1.5 degree issue that we have globally. Yeah, okay. I feel very relieved that everyone is apparently so hard, working so hard to... No, you shouldn't be relieved. Achieve. I think because... Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, all of us needs to be uh, yeah. looking at it. Yeah. We need a... I think there has to be a, a governmental intervention. There has to be a private sector and everybody has to be, you know, be aware about it. No, sure. I know that the climate crisis is not solved, but it's good to know that it's such a big company uh, as your company is so aware of it and that everyone is dealing with this on a daily basis. That, that will make a difference. I mean, maybe not enough, but it is a start, I think. And, um, yep. and I think it's a big difference compared to five years ago. Yes. Yeah. That's right, because I think the the change in leadership in the U.S. also matters. So, of course, oh. all, there's a more stronger buy-in from all the uh, the leadership around the world, right? And then, of course, we need a stronger leadership even with the corporate sectors, uh, all the different corporate sectors and the billionaires of the world, right? Have to unite and then have their own uh, directive top-down. I mean, bottom-up, we were trying to do bottom-up and then top-down also in our company. But I think there has to be a very, very strong top-down uh, leadership from all the different billionaires around the world. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, of course, yeah, every bit will help, right? So, yeah, uh, I also gathered some uh, questions beforehand uh, from, from listeners. Um, there are some funny questions in there. Um, one is, what do you think about architecture in Europe? Ah, 
here. Um, I think if you look at the the modern architecture itself, uh, the the key DNA, if you talk about a modern architecture, comes from Europe, right? Because uh, mm. before, even before the Second World War, um, in Germany, you had the Bauhaus, etc., right? and they had already started what modern architecture is in Europe. And then, of course, the Second World War completely disrupted everything. But then after that, this, <clears throat> it's also interesting that the Second World War then pushed a lot of these uh, key people who were in Germany and around that you know, Europe to the rest of the world, right? And literally after the war, so because of the housing issue, the sector, um, the, the, the design of the, the buildings that we see today in Asia or the rest of the world <laughs> literally comes from, <clears throat> comes from Europe itself. And then after that, I think in the past 30 years, um, more and more um, top European architects from whether it's from UK, Scandinavian countries, um, Holland, the sector starts to do their work rest of the world, right? And then of course, uh, we talked about the Asian explosion right? with the WTO coming in the sector. Um, all of these Western um, architects, not just from Europe, but of course, even from the US or other places, they start to work in, uh, in Asia extensively, especially China. And, mm -hmm. and I think maybe about four years or so ago, there was a RIBA um, statistics, which showed that a lot of the the company and the architectural company in UK, majority of 25% or 30% of their projects were in China. Oh, wow. So, so a lot of the European companies, uh, their bread and butter is coming from Asia, right? Yeah. So, and, and that's a good reason for it because the, the Asian architecture, the sorry, European architecture, the university in Europe have been able to experiment a lot in the architectural thought process itself. So a lot of the cutting edge uh, design thinking, um, spatial thinking, et cetera, et cetera, were coming from there itself. Apart from the statutory uh, uh, quotes also, because Hong Kong statutory quote, for example, comes from UK, right? So a lot of the, 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 the thought process comes from there and mm -hmm. uh, we have benefited for sure. And how is it in China then? How what is the status of architects in China? How are they following the, more the Europe model, or they are, yeah, no, quite extent. Because I mean, if you look at before um, before the WTO fully kicked off in let's say by two thousand and five, two thousand ten, uh, prior to that, most of the architecture that was done in China was done by Hong Kong architects, right? And then, of course, a lot of the Hong Kong architects, the, uh, the standard architects in Hong Kong are not very good. So they literally transplanted uh, what we had in Hong Kong, right? Those cruciform blocks and those uh, typical Hong Kong buildings. And now if you go to China, certain places, uh, whether it's in Shanghai or Beijing or wherever, even in hinterlands of China, you'll see a lot of these buildings, which looks very much like Hong Kong, right? Mm. So we transplanted a lot of our uh, quality of architecture there. But then after that, I think in the, then with the WTO coming in, uh, what China has done is they've tried the same for, uh, policy of designing also. So they said, okay, you're going to have an LDI, a local design institute, who's going to do part of the work, and the foreign architects can only do the, the the front end design, after which the local architects or the design institute will take over and then implement that. The whole, I'm assuming that the goal was that in uh, another 10 years, 20 years, et cetera, and by now, the local architects in China, the engineers in China would have learned enough to be able to stand 
uh, amongst the global uh, design elite itself, and then uh, then deliver the different architecture in China. So in that sense, yes, uh, they have managed that. So there are already some lot of uh, architects coming out of China who are quite good. But at the same time, I think uh, the 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 architecture, the, the clients in China do want a global design teams. Mm. So in that sense, I think you can have architects from South America, from Europe, from Americas, et cetera, all of them working in China, right? So that, and then of course, there's a lot of uh, different architectural competitions held in China where they invite global companies to come and uh, compete for a design, right? So in that sense, I think uh, the Chinese architecture is a, a melting pot. Yeah. A lot of different styles. Some of them highly stylistic, but of course, um, at, at the same time, it also has a fairly strong statutory and life safety uh, codes to comply with. Yeah, yeah. So it's improving, but still there is a preference for for yeah international allure there. Uh, yes, they they want the latest uh, you know design standards or design uh, thought processes right, in their buildings. Uh, and the sheer amount of volume of work means that there is a market there for any talent, uh, global talent, right? Is there any prestigious project that you are admiring that, that happened in China? No, oh, there's, there's a multi multiple uh, different kind of things. I mean, if you look at the different airports that are being built, the stations that are being built, I mean, uh, some of the, I mean, if you look at Beijing, right, so they have uh, two of the largest uh, airport in the world, right, so you've got the, the capital airport that built, uh, that was, uh, I think, when was it? Was it last year? It just opened up, designed by Zaha Hadid, right? Um, and then uh, mm. prior to that, you had the Foster's, uh, the Beijing capital airport, right? So uh, some of the largest airports in the world are being built in China, stations, the tallest buildings, some of the tallest buildings, right? So there's uh, multiple kind of uh, cutting edge, you could say cutting edge architecture being built in China right now. Yeah. Yeah, that must be really exciting from your point of view. Yes, yes, definitely. And sure. did you ever consider to move to Europe or to to US to to experience a different kind of environment for the creative process? Um, I think the. I mean, working here in Hong Kong, life is, uh, you know, it's so busy that you don't have time to think about other things. So sometimes I think uh, I do want to slow down a bit and then work in a much more uh, balanced space. But at the same time, I think, uh, you know, for a lot of us uh, um, people in the architecture sector, it's almost like a journeyman, right? You live from project to project, right? And then you think this is my mm -hmm. end of my project. I'm not going to do another station, right? I want to work something else. But then by that time, another project, another station comes along, another building comes along, which again looks very interesting, right? And then you work on that project for another two years. So in that sense, I think it's very hard to wean yourself away from a certain place where there's so much of activity happening, right? And then of course, the Hong Kong has been the fulcrum of uh, development around Asia itself. So being in this, uh, mm. this place in, in gives the you center. that so much you you feel that you're in the center, basically. Yes, yes, that's right. And that is so, good for the creative process as well. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the creative process is an interesting one because 
the assumption from the outside is that, you know, as an architect or a designer, you are being creative 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But that's not the case, right? So the creative process may just be 1% or 5%. The rest of the time is just trying to be really, you know, working really hard to make that creative process uh, realize that, right? So in that sense, I think it's a huge amount of hard work. Uh, but yes, you always live for that 1% of time when you are creative and when things are exciting. And that that sustains you. Okay. Yeah, going back uh, to Europe, um, apparently there are committees there that are approving uh, designs first before they are being executed to make sure that everyone likes it and it's fitting in the environment. Is this, there's some uh, similar mechanism here in Asia? Because Mm -hmm. in China, there were some crazy buildings also. Yes. I suppose some cities in Europe have that, but not all the cities. And it's also definitely some projects will have that, not all the projects, right? Uh, and then, of course, the other thing is, I mean, if you do have that kind of committee, right, who is in the committee, right? And the worst design that always happens is uh, you have a design by led by a committee, right? So if you have a design that's led by a committee, it's, it's going to look really, really horrible, right? So same, I mean, if you look at, um, I don't know, um, let's say the Sydney Opera House, right? So if uh, you had let the community do what they wanted to do, Sydney Opera House wouldn't be uh, there right now. It's going to be a completely different building, right? So, I mean, Johan Ulton's uh, design for Sydney Opera House was uh, uh, was fished out of the uh, of the discarded uh, discarded piles of uh, competition drawings, right? Mm. So, in that sense, I think. Uh, you can have a committee, but if you don't have a good committee, right, it's just, you know, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, so you're not a fan of committees, okay. No, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with committee, but I think you need to have a, the right committee. Right? Yeah. And um, in Hong Kong, we have, I mean, we do have, for example, if you want to build a footbridge across a, 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 a road, right, it goes through a committee who has to approve, right? So similarly, I think uh, when there's a competition, there will be a committee, right? So a committee is not necessarily bad, but I think the what are the term of references of the committee? Who is there in the committee? All of them matters. Yeah. Hey, and about the historical buildings, uh, I think in Shanghai, a lot of historical sites are disappearing, which is yeah. sad. And in yes. Hong Kong, there are still a, a lot of historical buildings. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, how is, what, is, what is the policy uh, here? Yeah, they have a, uh, the government does have the uh, grade the grading of the different uh, buildings in Hong Kong. So depending on the grade mm. itself, you can uh, adapt the building to meet a certain requirements, right? And then I think the um, so then of course all the uh, the old um, when you talk about old buildings in Hong Kong, it just depends on how long how old they are. <laughs> so certain buildings can't be torn down you can keep the facade or you can sometimes some buildings you can't even uh, touch the inside right so it really depends on the grading itself so but then at the same time i think uh, a lot of these buildings have to be uh, rejuvenated right, to meet the functions of the the period right so i think really would depend on uh, what the client's intention is and what the government will allow yeah is that different in china is it easier there to knock down historical buildings 
I'm, uh, I really don't know, to be honest. But mm -hmm. like you said, you know, um, if you if you look at Shanghai, right, with the French quarters, all those buildings, uh, they're still retained. And but then at the same time, they've uh, they've uh, demolished a lot of those buildings in uh, many areas. Right? Yeah. So I suppose um, in China now they are starting to appreciate a lot of the historical buildings, whether it is built um, in the last hundred years or in the last thousand years, right? So they are getting uh, their place in the sun and being um, so that the future generation can uh, uh, appreciate the yep. historical values of these buildings. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm moving on to my usual questions to my guests, and the first one is: Who were your mentors? Who inspired oh. you? Yeah, uh, it's a bit difficult to want to answer. Um, if, uh, I'm just thinking of uh, I, I didn't have too many mentors to be honest but one one mentor for sure was my 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 old company uh, Adis uh, my chairman that, that, uh, that his guy called Keith Griffiths he was uh, he was quite instrumental in me um, going down a certain path uh, and he was he was he was quite instrumental and then perhaps uh, another colleague um, that I can think of Robert True. Uh, someone who I think got me into station design, so he made uh, he made me appreciate the technicalities of uh, station design, which then made me appreciate a lot of the other works, infrastructure buildings, right? Which, and uh, and if I, uh, possibly if I hadn't worked with him, um, I wouldn't have been doing infrastructure buildings as actual. So in that sense, I think he was uh, quite instrumental for me, mm. uh, a mentor in a certain manner of speaking. But I think um, for me, I. I take um, a mentorship from very, very wide uh, tranches of people because I think uh, there's so many things you need to learn nowadays, right? Whether it's uh, climate actions or whether it's uh, hist history or economics, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And are you trying to guide young people uh, as a mentor yes. as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think uh, the, the critical bit, I think, is that uh, in, in the kind of work that we do, you need to have a foundation uh, of uh, craftsmanship or what they call it, design or craftsmanship of uh, details or technical knowledge or writing specification, et cetera. The amount of uh, knowledge that the young architects and designers have to learn is substantially large, right? So uh, to guide them to the process, um, you need to keep on being their mentors. And it's going to take at least about 10 years for, for an architect to be fully conversant and, uh, and to be a master in what he's trying to do. Yeah, that's pretty serious. So yeah, talking about 10 years, uh, where are you in 10 years and what are you doing? Ah, I think the... The key things I think would be uh, sometimes I think that I want to be working a little bit more on the the environmental aspects, right? So I think we have a 2030, 2050 goal, right? So more and more I think uh, I want to see if I can do more work in uh, buildings that addresses the climate change and possibly even the social social changes that are happening, right? Uh, not so much in the workplace strategy and uh, office design, but more other things, more healthcare, for example, but not healthcare from a hotel a hospital perspective, but healthcare from a wellness perspective, right? So I do think I want to head down a little bit more on, on those social architecture, social design. Yeah, so develop your expertise more in that direction. Ah, okay, that's a... Uh... Good. That's a nice goal, I think. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I feel like I'm on. A, I went on an architect uh, trip. Um, is there anything else that you want to add to your story? In... Well, not really. I think the, the the there's never a story, right? A lot of people say that they never write an autobiography, right? Because uh, it's too premature to write a autobiography so you just carry on your, your story just keeps continuing and as long as you're healthy i think uh, i just want to keep on doing what i'm doing can people uh, contact you if they uh, yeah yeah I'm, uh, yeah you can contact me through my company Arab, and i'm also on the linkedin the same name there right? so you can contact me through that okay great thank you very much then uh, thank you very much. okay you take care hey, of yourself. you too stay bye. safe bye-bye